you just tuned in to another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. Welcome. We are happy you are here to join in on this conversation today. On today's episode, we're going to sit down with an entrepreneur who is a trailblazer. She is creating safe spaces for women of color. And I think it's an important topic. I recently came across an article on Forbes that specifically said, stop attempting to silence women of color. And so this is a really great space and a really great conversation to try to understand, well, what is happening where women of color are being silenced, where our guest today has to create safe spaces for them to have these conversations? What is currently happening in today's world where this would be a need, right? And we're glad that someone is actually putting in the work to create those safe spaces and solve this problem. But honestly, many people don't even know that it is a problem. And so on today's episode, I want to explore this topic, understand what is currently happening in the landscape of things and uh, see what's going on behind the scenes and uh, how you can be a part of, collaborate, or invest in this particular area. So joining us on the show today is Keisha Howell, and we're going to be talking about creating safe spaces. I'm DJ Moultrie of Black Equity Network, and welcome to Black Equity Podcast. We are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. I'm excited to continue this Black Founder series. And uh, on today's episode, I really want to dive into uh, how we can uplift Black women globally. And in order for us to have that conversation, we need to bring on someone who's doing just that. So uh, Keisha Howell, welcome to Black Equity Podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. For those who don't know who you are, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company and organization. Beautiful. Um, so my name is Keisha Howell. I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. So shout out to all the Southerners. I like to call myself a social entrepreneur. And I am actually quite new to the entrepreneur game. I quit my job back in May and decided to begin working for myself. Um, my organization, I have two businesses that I operate in. One is called the Harambe Collective, which is a community that is exclusively for women of color. And then I also have my own personal business called Bold Hughes. Um, I am also a fifth year doctoral student. I graduate in the fall. So I'm really excited about that. Congratulations. Um, I am a children's book author, not yet published, but I have an agent. We're working on different manuscripts. Um, I dabble in interior decor here and there, and I'm very much an extrovert. And so I am constantly in search of opportunities to meet new people and talk to new people, which is why I'm really excited to be on this podcast today. Awesome. Awesome. So we have a lot of different uh, pathways to go down. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk uh, about the entrepreneurial journey for yourself. When did you know that you were an entrepreneur? When did that come up into your mind of this is a path that I want to go down? It's so interesting. So when I quit my job back in May, I had no intention of starting a business. Um, I knew that I was tired of being around white people. I knew that I was exhausted working for someone else, but I didn't know what the journey was going to be. And actually, when I quit my job, I started looking for other jobs to work for someone else. And I had sent out this tweet um, back in April, actually, where I was like, I wish somebody else would put together a virtual retreat and it could be about being a bomb black woman and all these other things. And then it hit me that actually, Keisha, you're capable of doing that. And so I put together a virtual retreat in May and like 85 women came and I thought it was super dope. And at the end, they were like, what's next? And I had never considered the what's next. I had never thought that it would become a business. I just thought it would be a one-off really dope event. And it would be like, Y'all ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here type situation. And then I realized, oh, wait, people actually need this. And this Mm -hmm. is something that 
is really important. And so I honestly fell into entrepreneurship. The moment where I was like, oh, I'm built for this was immediately after um, crowdfunding $10,000 for our organization. I was brought back to a story about my dad before he met my mom, before I was born, where he worked in a mill in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he wanted to work for himself. And so he quit his job with great benefits, with great pay. And he actually purchased a bike and a lawnmower to start his own like handyman service. And he rode around Winston-Salem with the bike, dragging the lawnmower and started his own business to the point where he paid for my undergrad out of pocket, straight mm. And being reminded of that story, I was like, oh, you're built for this. Like, this is your legacy. It's a part of your family. You have watched him be an entrepreneur all of your life. You got this. And so that was the moment that really solidified for me that it was in my blood to be an entrepreneur. I love that. Um, to keep going down this entrepreneurial path, and we may dabble into some of the other areas that you um, have interest in. Mm -hmm. um, when, when you become an entrepreneur, how do you decide this is going to be my mission or this is going to be my vision or this is the specific frequency in which I'm going to operate in? Mm -hmm. How do you come to that? Is it based off of life experiences? Is it based off of where you think the future is going? Mm -hmm. How, as a founder, how do you make that decision? Yeah, it's interesting because um, have you heard of Masterclass? Yes. So I, I have a membership to Masterclass and I have been okay. watching all of these like brilliant multimillionaire people talk about their journey. And I was watching um, Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, and she mm -hmm. was naming that she was naming like these three questions that you ask yourself when you're trying to like name your thing. And one of them was like, what are you good at? And honestly, I have been good at, at curating communities for years. Um, I'm the person who pre-COVID, obviously, my previous apartment was huge. It could house like 60 people. I would throw a party and, and cook like a Southern woman would, sorry to the stereotypes, but was like cooking a, a huge pot of gumbo and catfish and all these things. And then I would invite my friends over and we would all have a good time. So when I sat and thought about like, Keisha, what is the thing that you've been doing for forever? is curating communities. And one thing I did not mention is I'm also an educator. I've been in education for 10 years. And so in your classroom, when you're working with kids, you get a fresh group of kids every year and you're expected to find a way to build culture in your classroom. And so building culture and building community and creating the sustainable systems around that was something that I had been doing. I'm really good at it. And so that was one of the things that really led me to okay, this is going to be the work that you do. But another question that Sarah Blakely asked is like, what good will it do? Like once you choose your, your thing, in what way is it going to serve other people? And that is actually the wavelength that I've been on for since the beginning of the Harambe Collective is like, how am I being in service of other people? Um, and that has really fueled my desire to to push through my when I'm tired and don't have the stamina it's like but this is in service of other people and that is the thing that's really important and powerful to me so let's kind of dive into how you are planning or how you're uh, going strategically into impacting um your community your uh your chosen audience mm -hmm. tell me more about the specific mission and vision that you have for is, is Harambe Collective? Harambe, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about the name and tell me about uh, the mission and vision, how all that came together. Yeah. So the name is really important because when I say Harambe to people, they're like, like the gorilla? And I'm like, no, that, no, that's not what we're doing here. So right. Harambe is a Swahili word that means let, like the direct translation is let's pull together. And it's the word that I learned like over 10 years ago in an organization that I was working in. But it essentially means that like in order for a community to actually excel, everybody has to be giving of, of something. Um, and theoretically, if everyone is giving, then everyone is also receiving, right? And right. so when I was first thinking about what I wanted the organization to embody, 
that's how I chose the name. I was like, I want to create a space where women of color can come together and say, here's my gift, here's your gift, and we are all giving of our gifts and our time and our talent, then we could all be good. And so that's like one of the foundational aspects of the Harambe Collective. But something else that I wanted to do that I am also good at is the, the tricky thing about the pandemic was that so many of our communities were stripped from us. Our ability to see our friends, to go to brunch, to be able to make new friends, those things were not as easily accessible anymore. And so I know that I am an extrovert. I know that I will go and make friends regardless of what the conditions are placed upon me. But I also recognize that there were many women of color who were in such deep places of isolation that having access to community and friends was not always available to them. And if there's anything I can do is I can find you a new group of friends. And so I was like, I wanna create the conditions where yes, women can flex their gifts, but I also wanna create the conditions where women could be introduced to new friends, new community, turn family and be, cause like for me, that's how I'm surviving this pandemic. It's being in community with really dope, brilliant people specifically dope, brilliant women of color. Um, but I also asked myself, like when the pandemic first hit, I asked myself, like, who do you want to be when this pandemic is over? Like, mm. do you want to say that you were doing the same stuff that you did back in March when everything was shut down for you? Or do you want to be able to say, here's how I have learned and unlearned and relearned and grown in this time. Like, here's how I've used this time. And so I also wanted to create the conditions where women could be like, I am here to deliberately unpack and unlearn whatever it might be that is impeding me from being my highest self. And so all of those things are essentially the, like the core foundational aspects of um, the Harambe Collective. But something else that I think is really important to name is this, um, one of the things that I also believe is really important about my work in the Harambe Collective is this whole concept of solidarity. Um, and often when we talk about solidarity, specifically solidarity with white people, it comes at the cost of people of color not being able to be their, their full selves. Like when I think about the feminist march that happened in Washington, the level of racism that happened at that march towards women of color who were trying to be in solidarity with white men, women was outrageous, but it's, it's what happens. And so what I am, the, the scholar in me, the researcher in me is trying to find out how do you create communities of solidarity while also attending to the nuanced um, lived experiences of our, of our individual selves? Like, how do I be a part of this Black collective identity as a Black woman while also honoring my individual experiences? Or how do I, as a Black woman, be a part of the collective of women of color without erasing who I am? And so those are just some of the things that are really crucial to this community and that really drove my desire to build it and to sustain it. I love that. Um, what is, it's causing me to look at as you're solving or uh, deciding what your solution is, I kind of want to look at what you may have saw as the problem a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. it, there's, if you're curating communities for women of color, I guess, um, and maybe this is the ignorance talking, uh, was there no curation before? Was was there little curation? Was there anyone else uh, trying to accomplish what you were accomplishing before? And what were you adding different? What was your own different spice that you were adding uh, into the space? So it's interesting because I actually have a pitch competition coming up on Tuesday. And when I first started the Harambe Collective, I actually went and joined other organizations because I wanted to see for myself. I was like, if you're going to come, because it, it always irks me when people are like, I'm creating something new. And I'm like, there are like 10 other people doing what you're doing. Right. Um, right. And so I didn't want to be that person. I was like, let me go do some research first, because if this community always already exists and I'm I'm on board. But if I feel like I can add something different, then I'm here for it. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting about the time that we live in is we live in an in a era of influencer power and social capital. And one of the things that I wanted to resist was that. Um, when I first started the Harambe Collective and I was trying to find ways to be able to grow the community members, 
I had a coaching session with someone and they were like, you should get influencers to come in, only get people who have X amount of followers on Instagram. And they're going to be the people that's going to help you build your community. And that just didn't feel right to me. Um, I was like, if I want to create a space of vulnerability, mm. if I want to create a space where people, well, everyone could be seen in some capacity as an influencer and as an expert, then I have to be mindful of who I'm using to market this space. And so that's one thing that I feel like is very different. We, I try not to, and don't get me wrong. I think using influencers and social capital is smart. Like that's a billion dollar industry. I think it is so intelligent and it, it, it works, but I chose not to do that. And I sacrificed that. I was like, by sacrificing, leaning into influencer social capital, that means I might not grow as fast, but I'm okay with that. So that's one thing. And then as a result, that means that the, so every month we offer our members content. Um, So they have between like seven to eight events that they can choose from across the month that they can attend virtually. The beautiful thing is that over 75% of that content is produced by members themselves. And so there are members who are like, I think I'm an expert at this thing. I would really love to hold a workshop or a conversation or a webinar. And that to me is what makes the space different, that the content is produced for members by members, which creates a different sense of community. It is essentially Harambe. It's like everyone is coming together and saying like, oh, I can teach about getting an LLC or I can hold a conversation for mothers. And that to me, is really powerful. But I think like those are the key things that make it different that we are choosing not to lean into um, influence their social capital. And we're also thinking closely about where our content comes from. And that to me is what makes it really different. I think what's also different is that you, and it's interesting that I am speaking on a podcast that's about Black founders, but my organization is for women of color. It's not just for Black women. And when I look across at different organizations, there are really dynamic organizations that are only for Black women that are popping. I'm like, they are amazing. And I think that work is essential and important. And I want those spaces to continue to grow. Something that I find to be really powerful, though, is the cross-race, cross-cultural conversations that could be happening. Um, I think that my, my ministry, if you will, is to facilitate those conversations within women of color. Now, my ministry is not conversations with white people, not <laughs> Okay. My ministry, though, is thinking about how are we within the community of color? How are we having conversations around our, within ourselves, especially when it comes to things around anti-Blackness, especially when it comes to things around the prejudices that we might have within each other? Because quite honestly, we can't go nowhere if we're all in our different silos. Like if we're all in our different groups and ain't nobody talking to nobody, we really can't go anywhere. And I think that understanding what solidarity could be is the answer. But another thing that is really powerful about our community is our perception of womanhood. Um, We are not just a community of cis women. And by that, I mean, we are a community that affirms the the womanhood of trans women and thinking about how are we facilitating the community and conversations across cis women, trans women, gender nonconforming, gender queer, gender fluid people of color. That also is something that is really essential and important to our community. So like all of the things that I just named is what makes us unique. All right. So we, we're about to get into some um, interesting topics here. Um, what do you think has been one of the most impactful conversations that has been curated through your community so far? Oh man, it's hard to choose because there are so many. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I love about our community is that we are we are very fluid in what in our identity. I like to think of it as like Michelle Obama, Cardi B, and Megan Thee Stallion could all be members of my community and feel okay. in some very way. interesting. So like, we're not just scholars. We like we listen to hotels. Like it's all of those things. Um, I don't. Now hotels could have had a couple more songs. I mean that that was a very short. Can we can we get like three I more mean, songs on the album? We did talk about that. We also talked about the way that the album was organized and mm-hmm. what whether or not we thought there was thought process around that and how we might reorganize the album. Um, I I don't think I can name a conversation in and of itself that 
is that has been the most transformational because they've all been really powerful. Like I think what some of my most favorite events, we had a conversation around sex and sexuality and we really had vulnerable moments of like, what have we learned about sex and sexuality that is very rigid? And how are we deliberately working to unlearn those conceptions? We've had, um, like we had a whole month where we focused on our passion projects and we talked about holistic branding and how do you look across a person who's multi-passionate and find the theme that goes across it. We've talked about um, open and polyamorous relationships and what those look like and how are we defying um, the, the like norms of relationships. We've talked about being women of color and how some of us don't want to have kids and how in communities of color that's often shunned. But mm -hmm. being able to stand firm in the fact that we some of us don't want to have kids. We are having um, some conversations come. Oh, one that we recently had was about genograms. Are you familiar with genograms? Oh, educate me. So a genogram is where you essentially take your family tree and you study it objectively and you track um, where, for example, you could track like mental illness in your family. You could track money habits in your family. You could track relationship habits in your family. And you're able to get this like objective perspective of patterns all the way mm. to you. And so we recently did that and it blew our minds to be like, oh, this explains a lot about right. behaviors and our conceptions. And so we're having a part two of that in February, but thinking about it through the, the relationships and thinking about what are some of the things that we have um, unconsciously inherited from our families because we're watching it, but we're not sure, we're not aware of how much we're internalizing that um, and how that shows up in our current relationships. We're also having a conversation about friendship ties because I think in this pandemic, Obviously, romantic relationships are strained. Like, if you ain't been around your partner and now all of a sudden y'all stuck in the house together, like, right, right. I don't know what's happening. But friendships right. are also crumbling. Like, friendships sure. are crumbling. And a lot of it has to do with these unspoken vows that neither friend is aware of. Because in a romantic relationship, you're like, here's what we're going to do. Here are our boundaries. That's if you do those. But in friendships, you might not be saying that. So it's hard to say because all of the conversations I think are really beautiful and powerful and necessary for us to be having. Well, you, you bring up an interesting topic. I have a couple more controversial questions uh, for you. But before I bring up the controversial questions, I, mm -hmm. I've always found that a lot of us don't, as human beings, we don't necessarily define our friendships in life. We, for some of us, we don't even announce that a friendship has occurred. So we'll have somebody in our life and we're mm -hmm. hanging out with them and we're going mm -hmm. this place and that person. And the next thing you know, it's been 10 years mm -hmm. and no one ever really sat down and you don't get on on one knee and say, hey, do you want to be friends? Right. And so uh, I, I'm wondering if that would be a lot more healthy in our communities, especially across uh, different ethnicities to and genders mm -hmm. for us to say, hey, um, I really enjoy the time I'm spending with you. I love what you're doing. Do you want to be friends? Right. I know that sounds let's third know, let's grade. Let's go or... elementary school because kids exactly. do that. Second graders will pull up and be like, can we be friends? Adults, exactly. we fall into friendship. And then when conflict comes, we don't know what to do with it because we've never discussed it. So that's the conversation we're having. We're like, how do you enter friendships? How do you set boundaries? How do you create vows and what do you do when conflict arises? Because it's complicated in friendships. And then another piece of that is how you exit friendships. Because if you're going to enter it, it could be a possibility. Because one, one way or another, all friendships end. You hope that it ends mm -hmm. with being at the end of life and, you know, seeing each other off into another uh, uh, dimension. Mm -hmm. uh, but it could end five days later. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's good to have those parameters, like you're saying, mm -hmm. and I think it brings up a very interesting, um, interesting point. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Absolutely. All right, are you ready for more controversial questions? I am curious to hear what your controversial <laughs> questions are gonna be. Okay, 
so here's my first controversial question. And I, I typically, when I'm listening to you, I always, not just you, but anyone I'm, I'm talking with, I'm always thinking, okay, what are the people in the audience, mm -hmm. what would their pushback be, mm -hmm. right? So one of the pushbacks may be, well, why can't men be part of the collective? Mm -hmm. So not to get too controversial, just throw, throw out a softball. Mm -hmm. uh, could men add value to your community in any way? If they could, why not bring them in as well? So how do I want to say this? Let's do uh it. So the thing is, there are communities for people of color that if men want to be in community with women that they could go to. Um, like one in particular is Ethel's Club, dynamic community, huge membership, there for people of color. And so if you are a man and you trying to be in community with women, that's where you could go. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I would say the same thing that I would say to a white person. Like if a white person says, I feel like I can add value to commu your community. No, you can't. Like they're not just not to this one, to other communities maybe, but not to this one. I think what's also so necessary for the women of color of my community, my ministry, is that I create a protective barrier away from the harm that men can cause. And women who choose to be a part of my community are choosing to not be in that space. Okay. And I can do the work as the founder to protect them from that. And it's so funny because I was had a clubhouse room and we were talking about like the strong woman of color complex and how that is something that we experience. And we were in the room and somehow a man got on the stage and the room got quiet. Like mm -hmm. you can see in your head, everybody looking at their phone, like, now how did he get in here? And I don't want to ever create that for a woman in my community. I don't want to ever create a space where they cannot be their most vulnerable selves because they are fearful or hesitant to be who they are because they are in the presence of a man. And so because this community is exclusively for women of color, that means that men can't add value to this space. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate you. Uh, going through these controversial questions. Next one, you hinted at my question, but I'm not going to let you uh, step to the side of it. Uh, you did touch on it about white people contributing. Why do you think white women could not contribute value to your community? So I have worked in predominantly white spaces my entire career. And something that I believe is really important is that both white women and men have their own work to undo before they can say, I am ready to be in community with you. Um, though at least the white people that I have engaged with, the white women that I engage with, I spend most of my time teaching them not to be harmful. And as a result, I can't even enjoy myself. Like I think about the work conversations that I've had and how so much of my time is spent being like, that was racist, you should not say that. The same with men, um, that was sexist, you can't say that, that was transphobic, what are you doing? And I, if I wanted to be in that space, then I would go to a community where there were white people and where there were men. Um, but there's so much work that has to be done. And I'm not, and that's not to say that women of color don't have to do their own work. I'm saying that this space is not a, a platform for white people to come and learn and unlearn. This is not a platform for men to come learn and unlearn. And so the same way I said that men can't add value to this space, white people cannot add value to this space. Primar and that doesn't mean that they don't add value to spaces. That means that because this space is exclusively for women of color, they can't add value to this space. So what I think I'm hearing, I want to repeat it back and see if we're on the same page. What I'm hearing is based off your mission and the vision that you have for your community, those two entities, and when I say those two entities, I mean white women and, and men would be a distraction to the overall uh, goal of your organization. Am I understanding that correctly? You summarize that perfectly. Okay, understood. Because then topics would come up that would be more about them and that would distract from the ultimate goal. Now you're spending three weeks on this or four weeks on that. Right. Um, you know, now you got to heal the white woman's uh, pain of her victimhood and the things that, you know, yes. let me tell you the story. I mean, I got to make t-shirts that say white tears. Like I don't have time, like not here. <laughs> it's a lot. 
but I went to go see when the help came out. You seen the movie Help, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I went to go see the movie The Help. And uh, I'm sitting in the movie theater. And now it it was a little packed in there, but it wasn't like packed, packed. Mm-hmm. It was enough seats to find. Can I just say I love how black people repeat things twice and you know that that is emphasizing. So it wasn't yeah. packed, packed. I get you. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't an empty theater, but there was plenty of seats. Mm-hmm. But this white woman found a way to come sit by some black folk. During, I mean, when I say sit by, I mean literally right next to. There was plenty of seats, Mm-mm. but she found a way to sit by, and uh, she leans over to to the group of, of black folk, which I was part of, and she says, "I read this book," and that was her icebreaker, right? And, I, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" Now. Me personally, I had no idea what I was even stepping into. I just knew at the time that it was a really popular movie mm-hmm. and everybody was talking about it. And so uh, the movie goes on and all these different things are happening. And I'm just hearing her making all these different sound effects. For anyone who's seen the movie, uh, you can probably guess the different parts where she's, oh my goodness, oh. And so she, the whole, she, it felt like she started making the whole movie about her. So at the end, of, we get to the end of the movie, and I can't even remember what the ending of the movie was. But we get to the end of the movie, and magically the the uh, the the handkerchief comes out. She's crying. She's boohooing. Not magically. <laughs> out of nowhere, and I'm like, she done made this whole help movie. She done made a about sequel. her. And so I can understand for those who may not get it, mm-hmm. and especially if if. A Caucasian person were to step in and listen to this podcast, mm-hmm. sometimes what ends up happening is uh, the spaces that were designed for us to have a conversation, especially mm-hmm. if it's uh, Black people, but with you, it's specifically women of color, mm-hmm. but we have these designated spaces and somebody else will slide in and then they'll, they'll try to take the entire spotlight mm-hmm. and turn everything mm-hmm. about them. So I just wanted to give a little context to that right. so they can understand where you're coming from. I appreciate that. Because I'm not big on context sometimes. I have to remember that context is important. Because I would have just, I thought like, Keisha, you have to give a really full explanation. Because what I really wanted to say is like, it's a no. Like, no. Not right, right, right. So I appreciate the context that you just provided. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Um, so I want, I'm wondering, how was your community handling uh, the Black Lives Matter movement as it was happening? Was there any unique dynamics that, that occurred during that, that you're able to share? How did that impact um, your mission and your organization? Well, I wouldn't say that like Black, so we are actually housed on Mighty Networks. Are you familiar with Mighty Networks? Yes. We use Mighty Networks and that's where a lot of the in-between events conversations happen. Um, And so people post articles, they have side conversations. And so that's where the bulk of it happened. But the conversation that actually is happening the most right now in our community is about colorism. Mm. Um, And thinking specifically about, there was a song, I can't remember the artist, uh, something league, I can't remember her name. Um, But she just recently came out with like a light skin girl anthem. Like that's actually the conversation that we've been talking about um, in our feed and just thinking about the the impact that, again, that has in our community and how we are positioning those conversations and having those conversations. And so I, I wouldn't say that like Black Lives Matter and, and the movement and the craziness that 2020 was, which isn't new behavior mm-hmm. experiences for us. I wouldn't say that that took central stage because at the core of this community is creating actually a space of almost like a space to block out the white noise. Mm. Um, Because I think that something that we experience as people of color is we don't have many spaces to escape from the trauma that we experience every day when we're on social media and we're watching black people being killed and we're watching cops get off with nothing we see that constantly what this space is about is like how do I then create a space where I can heal from that 
And so that's, it's a delicate balance of having the conversation while also more so focusing on the healing that has to happen after that conversation is had, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Earlier, you mentioned uh, Clubhouse. Uh, just recently, it was announced a billion dollar valuation. I have my own opinions on that. Um, just throwing it out there, I, I believe that our community uh, was a big part of the valuation. Um, but that's not the reason for where I'm going down on, on, this, um, on this path. I've noticed that, I know you mentioned that sometimes on Clubhouse, there'll be a guy in a room with supposedly a conversation only for women. Sometimes I'm that guy. Right. Sometimes <laughs> I don't think I was the one in yours, but sometimes it will say black women versus white women or something. And I'm like, oh, perfect. And right. I just hop in. I don't get on the stage. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, this is good. Let me let mm -hmm. me, uh, you know, get my popcorn. Uh, but I, I have my popcorn. <laughs> got you. I got for that one. I That was good. Uh, but uh, there was one recently and it said, uh, why do dark skinned women uh, constantly undermine mm -hmm. light-skinned women's whatever, something along those lines, uh, traumas or something like that. I don't want to uh, uh, undermine it, um, but I can't remember the exact wording. Mm -hmm. And I know you're talking about colorism. Wh what do you think is at the root of this colorism situation mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be a global thing? I didn't realize. One thing I love about social media now is like, wow, all the things that I thought were just like right here, they're like everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so where is where do you think this stemmed from, this idea of colorism and dark skin, light skin, um, the hues of, of, of men and women and the way that we're treated? So I think two things. I mean, of course, I think we can go historically back to slavery, right? Like if we mm -hmm. really wanted to trace it all the way back, but I think the overall theme is proximity to whiteness. Um, and thinking about the ways in which we, and by we, I mean anyone and everyone, tend to seek validation because of our proximity to white. I think that colorism is a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say tricky. It's not a tricky conversation, but it's a very nuanced conversation. That's the word I want to use. Because there is this part of like, you think you're better than me because you're light-skinned. And then there's also the part of, because I am not dark enough, I am not perceived to be black. And that's, see, and that's why I think my community is important because it's like, let's have that conversation. Let's have the conversation where we can talk about colorism, where we are all in some way naming what our truth is, lower T truth is, but in order to be a member of my organization, you have to be dedicated to your unlearning. And I think that we often enter these conversations, like Clubhouse, there are no rules. There are literally no rules, no expectations, no boundaries, no nothing. And right. so when, when you enter a conversation like that on Clubhouse, I find that you're not talking to people who are willing to critically listen you're not talking to people who are interested in critically examining their own perception and bias and therefore unlearn some things. In my community, it's like, no, that's what we're doing. And that's what I appreciate about being the founder is because I can set the tone to say, when we have this conversation about colorism, we are here to hear each other out. We are here to say, oh, this is what I believe and this is what I need to unlearn and taking that position. And if you are not in a position where you're willing to unlearn, then this is not a space for you. Um, and so I think proximity to whiteness is a huge part of it. I think that not addressing our trauma that comes with skin tone and, and the range of skin tone allows us to enter conversations already harmed and not knowing what to do with that pain and then we project onto other people. But I also think that, you know, the media has a huge influence on our perception of what is beautiful and what is not beautiful and what is seen as like Eurocentric standards of beauty. 
and that also is ingrained in us since we're we were like children we continue to harbor those beliefs as we keep going so that's what i think is at the root of the entire like colorism saga and i appreciate you you know uh willing to go and uh, have this conversation with me because i know a lot of people they don't they tippy toe around this issue but i think it uh, like you were saying, I think it's foundational, especially in your mission mm -hmm. and what you're working on. I have found in Clubhouse and other places, it's really like, I got something to say. 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 And everybody just got something to say. And there, it does create some very entertaining dialogue and uh, causes people to come rushing into the room. But did we solve anything at the end of the day? Never. And so that's why it's important to have these conversations here. Mm -hmm. uh, th there is a, there is a conversation floating out there. Will uh, these these social media apps, these voice uh, in our audio and apps, will they end the podcast space? And I'm not too concerned about it personally um, because nothing is going to be a one on one conversation mm -hmm. where nobody is here to interrupt us mm -hmm. and we can learn from each other and unlearn with each other nothing's going to beat that unless you specifically on the audio end only have two people on stage yeah. uh talking um but even that can be a, a little dicey um so yeah i'm not too concerned about it especially i believe it's important for us to own our own content as well mm -hmm. outside of just giving our entire intellectual property away to somebody else right yeah, I don't think they serve the same purpose. Um, I don't like Clubhouse is, 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 well, no, Clubhouse is entertaining for me, but it's also a really beautiful networking tool, which I, that's yeah. what I appreciate it for. But I don't think that, because when I listen to a podcast, I want to listen to an uninterrupted conversation. Like that's what I go to a podcast for. When I go to Clubhouse, I'm either taking my popcorn, as you said, right. or like I tend to be in rooms where people are like, come and pitch your business because I love doing that because every time I pitch I get clear on what I'm doing or if I want to like collaborate with someone but it doesn't it doesn't serve the same purpose and it's not structured the same way let's talk about that real quick uh, this idea of attracting investors mm. uh, I always when I'm talking to founders I'm talking to entrepreneurs I tend to give them the advice of and maybe I'm wrong. For, actually, I know I'm not wrong, but maybe a lot of people won't accept this as uh, a style. My style is I'm interviewing the, the investor as much as uh, I'm the, the investor is interviewing me. It's the way I would love for entrepreneurs and founders to approach it because I don't want everybody's money, right? Okay. Uh, me personally, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I want to make sure that the person that is going to pour into the company actually understands what we're doing. They may not necessarily have to agree with it. It would be nice if they did, but I need them to understand, comprehend where we're going so they don't try to use their influence now that they've put their money in mm -hmm. to try to change the overall essence of what it is we're trying to accomplish, especially if that investment dollar comes from someone outside of who I'm trying to serve within my uh, organization. Uh, so I, what I would say to founders and entrepreneurs is interview them as well. Like, you know, what are your core competencies before I accept these dollars? Or where are we going with this and how involved do you want to be? But I would love to hear your thoughts as well. So I, it's the reason why I haven't. Um, so when I first started the Harambe Collective, my biggest, desire was to start something debt free. I was like, you a doctoral student, you already deep in debt, like you don't need to start this organization with debt, which is why I crowdfunded first. And I was like, if I can get this 10,000, then we can start something. Um, my community also just received a 25k um, grant from American Express. And the way that that was set up, it was like, here's your 25k. Here's some curriculum around business. You do it, whatever it is that you want. And the thing is, that type of money is everywhere. Like, right. I really want people to recognize that there are pitch competitions everywhere. There are grants everywhere. You can get money without having to owe anyone back, without having to give anyone type of access to your community, and you can still grow. And so that's my trajectory right now. I'm like, I want to get as far as I can without anyone investing, unless their investment is like, here's a grant, 
go with God, I don't want it because I'm also still in the early stages of my community. We just turned six months at the beginning of January and I am still clarifying systems of sustainability, like management systems, marketing, all of those things. I don't need someone else in my head right now, unless they are a coach that I have chosen, who I've also interviewed to actually support me. And so I think, and, and of course, like I am very privileged enough to be able to have access to these opportunities where I can have money and access to money without having to have anyone have a portion of my community. Um, but I do think that when I, if and when I start um, interviewing investors who are like, I want a piece of your organization, I'm absolutely going to be reading them up and down. Um, I have worked way too hard to establish a tone and expectations and a culture to have someone come in and do something that contradicts that. Um, and so the same way, like when I have new members, they get a one-on-one -on -one onboarding conversation with me where I'm like, so here's what we do. Here is what's happening. Here's how you give to the community. The same way that I onboard them with our process and our our value system and the way that we engage with each other would be the same way that I would be talking to an investor. I love that. And I, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the growth of your organization and congratulations on the uh, $25,000 uh, grant. So uh, very excited for you. Uh, Also, you mentioned earlier in this episode about being a uh, an author uh, for uh, children's books. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? And it may take us to a couple more uh, topics, but uh, how did that come about? And what what are your what is your your mission with that? What are you trying to to accomplish going down that route? Um, so I said that I've been in education for over ten years. I started teaching. Um, I taught in second grade, and then I taught fifth, seventh, and eighth grade. And so across those spans, I was able to see what books kids had access to. Um, and it's not until recently, and I'm talking about last five years, that the influx of Black authors has happened. Um, and not only that, the influx of Black characters in books and the types of children's books that are written by Black authors about Black characters. Like there are a number of books that have characters who are of color, but the authors are white. And so that's one thing I wanted to address. But a couple of years ago, like my first book idea, a few years ago, one of my, um, someone came to me and asked um, about for a book recommendation. And they were looking for a particular type of book that had a specific type of character and I could not find one. And I was like, well, the only solution that I have right now is to write it. And I did. And so that's one of the manuscripts that's into my, um, my agent right now. And then the other book um, is actually a biography. And I'm not going to name who it's by, but it's by someone who I highly admire. And one of the things that I realized is like the people who kids admire now, they don't have children's book biographies. If you go to a classroom right now, you're going to find biographies on like George Washington. And it's like, don't nobody want to read about him? Like, let's right. what about and so I was like, oh, I know that, you know, generally nonfiction content is not the thing that kids are excited about. Um, and biographies tend to collect dust on the shelf. But I wonder if some of the people who we admire, if we knew about how their childhood was. Mm how would we perceive them? If I were a child reading about Beyonce's childhood, right? what would I think about myself and the possibilities for myself? What would I think about her? And that's the route I wanted to take. I wanted to, but even as an adult, if I read a children's book about Beyonce's childhood, then I'm like, what? Beyonce did this? Right. Like, it's a whole different vibe. And I, I wanted, my second book is about a particular artist who I admire because I wanted to show people that who we are now has been brewing for years. Mm. Like if you really think back on our childhood, there are things that happened that were said to us that really molded the person who we are and the person who we will be. And if we live life that way, then we'll be looking out for those things. 
Like, again, I fell into entrepreneurship because I noticed things about myself and who I was becoming. And that's the power of the second book that I'm writing. I love that. I think that's a really great idea. Uh, A children's book based off the childhood of uh, some of our notable people uh, from our culture. Love it. Um, As adults, uh, we don't really know what they mm -hmm. went through to get to that point. And that's the story that I want to tell. I love that. I love that. That's a really great idea. Um, So also earlier, uh, you mentioned uh, interior design and having a a design background. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that as well. I want to make sure we get as much in as possible, Mm -hmm. all the different facets and the way that you're approaching life and Black equity. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about the design side. So my dad, um, as I said earlier, he eventually owned uh, like a handyman construction company. And so most of my childhood summer was going to work with him. And he worked in um, Myers Park. You're in Charlotte, right? Yes. So you're familiar with Myers Park. I am. And when I was young, like Myers Park was popping. It was like where all of the rich people lived. And those were customers. So I would walk into these houses and be like, wow, like look at all the stuff on their walls. And he would paint often. And I would paint with him. So I like grew up painting and and understanding how landscaping worked and understanding how to arrange a space. Like that was something that I grew up doing. And then I remember uh, my first apartment, I lived with, I moved in with my sister and she was impeccable. Like her room was beautiful. Painted her wall, had all of, you know, the, the stuff and the decor. And I wanted to do that too. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do something really nice. And I remember I painted my wall brown. I had a brown bed and a brown comforter. And she was like, girl, this is a whole mess. And so I really had to study, like, how do you choose colors that complement who you are, but that show up in your space? And so living with her also cultivated the desire to be mindful of my space. And then when I moved to New York, and I lived by myself, I was like, when you walk into your house, you want to be very proud of where you live. But not only that, I think, you know, one of the differences between interior decor and interior design, decor is like all the cute stuff that's on the wall and the colors. Design is about functionality. And so something I'm obsessed with is like, how do we create spaces that are both beautifully decorated, but also function in a way that eases our peace of mind? Like I tell people all the time, I'm like, if your house is not designed where you can get out of your house smoothly on a, on a work morning, you're going to have a bad day. Mm. Like if you can't find where your keys are because you don't have some type of design feature to help you find your keys, you're going to have a bad day. And so that's some of the work that I do. I used to do it. I thought that it would be the center of my work. And then the Harambe Collective happened. And I was like, that's actually not the center of your work. But right. it is like a side hustle. So um, I recently did a friend of mine for her partner um, purchased like a 24-hour room makeover. And I, I did that. And so I do it on the side, but it, it, it's really important to me. If, I think especially in this pandemic, where, where are we spending most of our time? in our homes right if you don't like the way your home looks you are it's it's chipping away at your mental health whether you recognize it or not um there was actually a study that was done um i think by ucla where they actually study people's stress levels and for people who do not have well-designed homes you can have the level of stress that people who have ptsd could have mm. And I don't think people recognize it. I'm like, your house, if you live in a cluttered house and you are tripping over stuff all the time, you don't <laughs> like the way that it looks, but you have to stay there all day, forget about it. So that that's why it's really important to me. And it might not be my main work, but it is something that I love to talk about with people. You know, I saw an article, this is a few years back. There, It said the, um, the science behind buying new pots and pans how just having new pots and pans for your own memory, because everything you're doing, you're creating a memory mm-hmm. you're, the, for, your, for your mind to go into the kitchen and have something new to cook mm-hmm. with, even if it's just a small investment, could change the way that you approach the kitchen Absolutely. Uh, as opposed to something you've had for 50 years and it's all beat up yep. or whatever it is. It probably cooks better with those 
older ones too. We want to get in get into that. I mean, keep your keep your cast iron skillet. Don't throw that oh, away. Oh yeah, you gotta keep that. that. <laughs> you gotta keep that. Uh, but it just does something to the mental, uh, having something new. So it's always good to refresh and rethink how we design our life. And it's a money saver. I think the place that people don't think about design the most is their cabinets. Like I, when I, when I tell people like, you need to have a way where you can see all your spices at once. And people are like, why? And I'm like, when you go to the grocery store and you pick up salt, but you've been had salt because you couldn't see the salt, like you were spending more money than you need to. And so I think it also has a huge impact on our finances and just thinking about the functionality of your home, especially if you're working from home is really, really significant. I wanted to, and thank you uh, for going down that road with me. Mm -hmm. Before we head out, I actually started the episode talking about- You didn't ask me about my doctorate. I'm sorry? You didn't ask me about my doctorate. Wait, I haven't finished the episode Oh, I just want to make sure (laughs) (laughs) that we get to all the things that I got going on because this is busy, okay? You know what? Tell me, how about this, Keisha? (laughs) Tell me all about your doctorate. I want to hear all about it. Go for it. Um, so I am a teacher educator. I actually am an adjunct instructor at Hunter. Mm-hmm. And so for the past five years, I've coached teachers who are either in the classroom already, are first year teachers, or who are pre-service teachers. Okay. And I had this experience a couple of years ago um, at a school, which shall remain nameless. And there was a um, black teacher and a white teacher in the classroom. And I'm like coaching the black teacher And I hear behind me someone say, you need to sit more like a human. And in my head, I was like, I know I did not just hear that. And I know that that white man. And I know when I turn around that that's not going to be what I think it's going to be. And I turned around and it was him and he was hovering over this black girl who was like leaned back in her chair trying to pick her pencil up off the floor. And the, the sad thing is the child got sent out of the classroom to the dean's office. And I was like, wait a minute. I know that white people be racist, but I sometimes forget that white teachers are racist. And that's what actually started me being like, okay, first of all, Keisha, you coach teachers. Where in their teaching were their conversations about race and racism and anti-racism? And then that actually started me on a journey where years ago, I worked for this organization called the Children's Defense Fund, and they have a summer program called Freedom School where it's basically uh, a literacy program during the summer and it's taught by college students. And they got their roots from a social movement organization called SNCC, the Student Coordinating Committee, Mm -hmm. who also had a freedom school back in 1964. The interesting thing about their freedom schools is that 90% of the teachers were white. And not only were they white, but they were northerners who traveled to Mississippi to teach these black kids in the backwoods of Mississippi. Yeah. So when I started thinking about my dissertation topic, I was like, I want to study them as if they were teacher educators. I want to say, what the heck did they teach these white people who were from the north, had no conception of racism, but they went to the south and many of them stayed after the summer. What did they teach them to be able to allow for a very radical movement to happen? And so my dissertation is essentially studying all their archives. They have like 30,000 documents, which is overwhelming, Um, but also interviewing the teachers who taught in those schools in Mississippi to be like, what do you remember? Like, what were you taught about teaching? And the thing is, some of them were not teachers. They had majors but they were still teaching these black kids during the summer in Mississippi. And so that is my dissertation. I am studying those teacher education practices to say, what could we be doing now? Like now that we have over 80% of teachers are white women, how are we learning from this historical education site that had the same demographics to think about like very non-traditional liberating teacher education practices? So that's my dissertation. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm glad that you reminded me uh, to ask that beautiful question that I asked. And before we let out, and I was like, before we let out here, <laughs> I was, it's called a segue. You had to give me time to ask all the questions. So before we head out, um, <laughs> earlier in the episode, I mentioned uh, uplifting Black women. And what I found is 
your mission isn't just about uplifting black women. It's about uplifting women of color. Mm -hmm. And so I want to ask uh, this last question and also give you the floor to close us out and give us some some uh, words of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, why prior to prior to you going down the path that you're going down, for those who may not understand, why do women of color need to be uplifted? Mm. Why, why is that a thing? Mm -hmm. You would think in society now that people would just be treated equally. Right. And I, I want, I'm really asking this question for people who may pick this up 10 years from now and listen to this episode as a time capsule. Because mm -hmm. um, maybe by then things have gotten better and then we'll look back on life and say, what, you gotta uplift someone? What was going on? Right. Why, why is this even needed right now in society? So I want to call, I'm gonna pull on like my, my scholarly hat um, okay. and talk a little bit about intersectionality. And okay. so um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw talks about this, Audre Lorde talks about this, Bell Hooks talks about this. And they essentially speak to the fact that because women of color are at the intersection of gender, um, gender bias and gender persecution and things that get in the way, barriers that are created for them because of their gender, but also barriers that are created for them because of their race, that actually puts them further down the list, if you will. And so if you think about it, if I am a white woman, I might be a woman, but I'm white. If mm -hmm. I'm a black man, I might be black, but I'm a man. Right. And so like those things allow me to have a little bit of leverage. But if I am a black woman, if I am a Latinx woman, if I'm an indigenous woman, then I, both of those things actually work against me. And so that's the answer. The answer is that intersectionality actually puts women of color in a very, um, I don't want to say sticky situation, but it puts us at the crosshairs of potentially losing on both ends. And that's why it's really essential for us to be elevated, to be celebrated and supported. Um, because we often don't have those opportunities. And I think just from my experience alone, in the moments when I am elevated, I'm elevated as a token. Mm. Um, I'm elevated as like the one black woman that we have in this entire sea of white women. And so you're the chosen one, but I'm not elevated because of who I am at my core. I'm elevated as the face that I can present for a particular business or organization. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Um, that's a very um, interesting uh, perspective. Uh, for those who want to reach out to you, collaborate with you, invest in you, provide grants for you, all the different things that we've uh, touched on today, mm -hmm. uh, what is the best route to collaborate with you and go down that path? So I think before anyone wants to collaborate with me, I would highly suggest that they study our, our website, um, which is www.theharambecollective.com that they study our Instagram page, which is also the harambecollective.com. And then it's through both of those um, platforms that they can actually get in contact with me so that like our email address is on the website, they can DM me on social media, but I highly encourage people to study us first to see if we are a community that they align with in terms of values and belief systems. Um, and then if the answer is yes, then send me an email through the website or you can DM me through our Instagram page. Perfect, thank you. I, I'm really glad that we had an opportunity to virtually meet. Uh, maybe we'll follow each other on Clubhouse and bump into each other. Mm -hmm. I may go into some rooms I'm not supposed to, just pretend like you don't see me. Maybe I'll even change it's my picture. It's fine as long as you don't try to come on stage. Like, oh, you, <laughs> you know what? 95% of my time on Clubhouse is me listening. I really don't want, I, I spend the rest of the day interviewing and talking with people all day. And I actually love just going in there, grabbing my popcorn, and just mm -hmm. listening. Mm -hmm. So I have no problem with that. I'll be quiet and just listen in on uh, whatever topic that you are presenting to uh, the audience. All right. I look forward to it. Thank you for coming on Black Equity Podcast. Mm -hmm. And we thank you uh, for all the work that you're doing in the community. We'll talk to you. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you for having me. Have a good one.
if you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe, share the episode, let everyone know about Black Equity Podcast, and then make sure you follow our guest. Make sure you look at the links in the show notes and take full advantage of every way possible to contact our guest today. If you'd like to work with them or partner with them and you want to reach out to us first, send us an email at blackequitynetwork at gmail.com. We're really excited about this conversation and the impact it can have all over the podcast space. So share to every single person that you know, even if they don't listen to podcasts, this will be a really great introduction uh, for them into this world. So thank you for being a subscriber. We appreciate your continued support and we'll catch you on the next episode of Black Equity Podcast.